As you will notice, uh, this is part two of Mail Call, and the title of my message today is, Has Your Love Grown Cold? Now, there should probably be a question mark. I don't think I, I gave that to Chrissy to put on the end of that cold there, but it's a question that I have for you, Has Your Love Grown Cold? It's taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And if you remember last week, we um, talked about the uh, introduction to the seven churches. And so we're going to continue in that today. Uh, this is not going to be an easy message to, to preach. And it may be a little bit longer than some. And I'm sorry about that. But sometimes it, it's worth, worth it if, you, if, if it applies to you, if, if it needs to apply to you. And um, I promise that we'll try to make them a little bit shorter in the next few weeks, but um, bear, bear with me and enjoy it, I hope, and pray that, that it will mean something to you. But I want to begin with this question. How many of you ever had the opportunity to see the movie Fireproof? Okay, so, okay, so a lot of you did. Well, that's, that's great, because the, the movie um, came out in September of 2008, and it stars Kurt Cameron. And in the wake of his daring rescue of a complete stranger, uh, this decorated firefighter, his name was Caleb Holt. That's the, that's the um, person that, played, that Kurt Cameron plays, Caleb Holt, realizes the extent to which he has failed as a husband. And so what he does in an attempt, a desperate attempt to save his uh, relationship with his wife, Catherine, what Holt does is he turns to this book called The Love Dare. And you know what? I meant to bring it. Sarah has it. I meant to bring it over here this morning to show you. But it's a self-help book to keep his marriage from ending in divorce. You know, he talks with his father about things, you know, and as you, as you know, the movie goes and he ends up winning his wife back. It's a really good movie about building godly marriages. So I want to remind you, I want, I want to begin this morning by picturing in your minds a young bride and a young groom who start out their married life and they're so much in love. Get that picture in your head, okay? They're so much in love, you know? So you got that picture? Some of you, some of you are really struggling there. Okay, so they, they say, they say I love you many times each day to each other. You know, they sit as close as they possibly can, oftentimes sitting on one another's laps, you know. And of course, they are telling each other how much they love each other as they're sitting on their laps together. They hold their hands. And they're not just holding hands. It's the interlocking finger type of holding hands. You know what I'm talking about. It's not just this thing. It's, it's this thing right here. But you know what? Time moves on. And with the passing of time, I'm reminded of the movie of, anybody see the movie Marley and Me? Oh my goodness, that was such a sad movie. I mean, I think Sarah and I both might have cried during that one, but it was, it was a really good one. But it, just like the movie, you know, the, the, the I love you's become less frequent. You know, with, with work and all the scheduling, there's, there's hardly ever any time to just sit by each other, much less to, to sit on each other's laps and just sit and talk or, maybe even to watch a movie together. Very rarely do they hold hands anymore, especially those interlocking finger kind of holding hands. And, and you know, there's, there's not even time to really talk or, or maybe even to go out for a little walk, you know, arm in arm or hand in hand, you know. Those things become less frequent. And so what ends up happening over a period of time, and it could, it could be several years, um, is that sometimes we become strangers sharing a house and a bed together, and that's about it. That's what happens sometimes. Some couples stay together out of loyalty to God and the commitment that they've made to each other, or maybe it's just because of the children. I will tell you that my mom and dad were one of those couples that stayed together because of the children. And the more I look back on it, I started thinking, I don't know if that was a good thing or not, you know, because it was pretty rough. But their love for each other has grown cold. It just has. It, it's just not like it was at the beginning. And it's sad, but oftentimes 
This scenario is extremely true. It very much is. Folks, unfortunately, as this happens in marriages all too often, you know, and, and I'm going to say to you, don't let this happen in your marriage. Don't allow that to happen. Fellas, don't ever stop dating your wives. Don't do that. Don't, don't allow it to, don't allow it to ha- happen in your, in your marriages. You know, but, but the thing that I want to say is that this doesn't just happen in marriages. You know, this sort of thing happens and it can, and it can happen in churches and it can happen as, as individuals. It can happen to all of us. Can a person, I want to, this is an important question. I want you to, I want you to think about this. Can a person be too busy doing God's work that they become just too busy for God? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there are many people who are always busy with church work, but somewhere their relationship with God got lost in the shuffle or maybe they're just neglecting it. Maybe like that, that husband to that wife or that wife to that husband. And after a while, people just begin what I call going through the motions, you know, without really being involved. Have you seen that? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, someone once said that familiarity breeds contempt. You know, and as in every proverb, there's often some type of element of truth to that. And so if it's not contempt, often which becomes familiar to us, guess what? We often take it for granted. That, that, that's so important that we don't allow that to happen. And this is especially so what I think is the most important relationship that a Christian has. And that, that relationship is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church at Ephesus had fallen to this level in their relationship with Jesus. And I want to tell you, as I begin to share with you some of the things about Ephesus, you're going to think, that's impossible. Because it sounded so good. You know, the city of Ephesus was the first of seven churches to receive a letter from Jesus by way of John. You know, Ephesus was part of this postal route that we talked about last week, okay? Uh, the city of Ephesus was very commercialized. It was Ephesus that stood as a major crossroad, and it was the capital of Asia back in that day. The city was located near the western coast, Its harbor, in the days of its glory, could accommodate the largest of all the ships out there in the whole world. It could accommodate them. So Ephesus was also easily accessible by land and was connected by highways to almost all the important cities. So Ephesus was a really important place at the time. Ephesus was... Far or Ephesus was for a, a long time probably what I would call the commercial center of Asia. That's how important they were. It was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. And get this, it was considered a free political city. A free political city. That's hard to believe, isn't it? A free political city. That's what, that's, that's what they were considered. And so Ephesus was also what I would call a religious city. Now, maybe not religion in the way we think of it. For you see, the, the temple of Diana of the Ephesians of Artemis was there. This temple was larger than a football field and was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It must have been absolutely beautiful, I guess, you know, from from what history says about it. Just absolutely beautiful place. But it's interesting how the Apostle Paul uses this whole concept when he shares with the Ephesian Christians 
that they were God's holy temple. Remember that? He says there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. And so he also shares the same concept with the Corinthian people. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 16, this is what he says. He says, don't you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That's what he tells us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. We are the temple of God. We are these little temples running around all over the place. We are God, really, we are, we are, we're God's spokespersons running all over the place here. You know, everywhere we go, we're God's temple. We're, we're the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So even though Ephesus was considered a religious city, it was also, it was also considered an extremely wicked city. You know, it was the, the center of idolatry and wickedness. And this is what one chief philosopher said about the city of Ephesus. I can't believe he said it, but he said it's a, its dwellers were fit only to be drowned. That's what he tells them. What an insult, but, but that's how bad he, he felt that the wickedness was in the city of Ephesus. But the apostle Paul, what he found there was a rich mission field for the Lord Jesus Christ at Ephesus. You know, notice his relationship with the church people and the extreme love that he felt for them and the warning that he gave them when he said this in Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 27, he says this, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The whole will of God. That's how important these people were to Paul. They were so important to him. And years later, years later, this church, well, they would receive one of those letters, one of those important letters from Jesus. Not, not from the apostle. It comes from the very words of the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What Jesus has to say to this congregation at Ephesus may very well speak to us as well as many other churches. You know, the church at Ephesus, it had a lot going for it, but Jesus also found a very important flaw which led to Jesus also rebuking them. And so this morning, as we open up our second letter, which, you know, is against the law to do, but still, since it's a letter that's coming to the church here, I guess we're allowed to do that. I have someone that's going to come and read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So, Terry, would you come on up? And come on up here to the stand and use this microphone, if you would. Terry's going to open that letter for us, and he's going to read for us what Jesus has to say to us this morning. <clears throat> Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share to the church in Ephesus. To the angels of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have pers persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from, the, from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in, paradise, in, in, in the paradise of God. May God love you. He made you complete in his sincerity. The Apostle John. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Jesus begins this whole thing with, with the, the church at Ephesus. And he begins by commending them as a church. Notice what it says there. Jesus says there, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember the golden lampstands, who they are. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your, your perseverance. He knows all this. I, I know that, that, that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's what he tells them. And he says, but, but you have this in your favor, that, that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he, he comes with this, this commendation for them and tells them all the things that, you know, and, and, and if you think about it, that's usually what you should do. If you're gonna, if you're gonna try to tell someone something bad about themselves, you should, you should tell them at least ten good things about themselves before you tell them one thing bad about themselves, you know? And so that's what Jesus does. He comes there and he commends them. Notice from this passage of scripture that Jesus is a, to he is totally aware of them. Notice what it says there. I know your deeds. I, I, I you, your hard work. I know you. I, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. He knows them. He knows them personally. He walks among his churches. He, he walks among the lampstands. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We are the lampstand. The church is the lampstand. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. You cannot hide anything from the Lord. He knows them personally. And he knows every single one of us in this room personally. And third, we are only fooling ourselves if we think that Jesus doesn't know what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the life of the church. We can't fool Jesus. You can't fool God. He knows. So in knowing the church at Ephesus, he knows the good points and some of the good things that they're doing. And, and they are doing some great things in Ephesus. Notice this. The first one is this. This church was an educated church. It was, it was an educated, you know, from the indications of other passages of scripture, we know that they had a good upbringing. This church at Ephesus, you know, Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, Timothy, Apollos, and John are believed to have been there at one time or another. So they have been taught and educated by the best. And so they were an educated church. Number two, this, this church was also a working church. It says he knew their works. This was a dynamic and active church. You know, the, the Greek word aragon, which we get our word energy from, you know, is, is used in this passage of scripture here. They were an evangelizing church, helping the needy, 
And I'm sure that they were, uh, at, you know, doing prayer meetings and, and having Bible studies. You know, in John's latter days, he emphasized to them to love one another. So, so they were a working church with respects to their hard work, toil, and, in, and endurance. You know, the light of the Savior was shining in the midst of the darkness in their world because of, of what they were doing. Number three, they were a determined church. You know, they persevered and, and they didn't bend under the pressure of Roman persecution or pagan idolatry. They, they weren't going to let that happen. Christ commended them for their practice. He told them what, what great they were. Uh, and again, they were what I would call a light. They were a light in the dark world. And then number four, they were a doctrinally sound church. We consider ourselves a doctrinally sound church as well. We consider ourselves an educated, a working church, a determined church, a doctrinally sound church. You know, they, they tested those claiming to be apostles and upon finding them to be false, they would reject them. You know, they, they could spot false doctrine. They were well grounded in the principles of God's word. They knew God's word. They knew it. So with teachers like Paul and Timothy and the Apostle John, who wouldn't? You know, in all these trials, this church had been loyal to the true doctrine and had not become weary. You know, they, they heeded Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 29. Keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so the Apostle Paul is telling them, he's warning them to watch out. Keep an eye on your flock. And that's what they did. They could spot false doctrine at a distance. And then the fifth thing that we know about this church is that the church of Ephesus was a discerning church. They were just, you know, they, they were not a anything goes type of church. You know, they cared about purity in the pulpit and, and proper biblical doctrine. You know, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, it says. These, these Nicolaitans, you know who they were? They were Christians who indulged in the fleshly lust involved in pagan idolatry that practiced sexual immorality and compromised with the worldly society around them. That was the Nicolaitans. And so they, they didn't want to even compromise with the Nicolaitans at all. So the church at Ephesus knew the Lord hated any compromise with the world, and in them there was no room for compromise, period. And so, see, for all these things... Jesus commends them how great they were doing. That sounds like a great church, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It, it sounds like a great church. And to this point, if I had to give them a grade, I think I would probably give them an A+. plus Because they, that sounds like a really great church. That's the church that I want to be involved in. You know, wouldn't you want to belong to some church like that? You know, the, like the church at Ephesus? Because they were doing really great. But... With all the talent and zeal in this church and all the great work that was going on in the church at Ephesus, Jesus tells them that they had one major flaw. And you know what? I personally believe, I can't prove it, but I believe, and it might be that that was the first church on the postal route that was going around for the letters, but I also think that maybe Ephesus was the first one to be dealt with because of the problem. Because of their, the, 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 the absence of what we're going to talk about here. You know, they had a major flaw. This flaw was not easily detected. And it's not easily detected since it is easily covered by good works. By our good works. But we know that good works don't get us into heaven. We all know that. The problem was so serious that if it was not dealt with, 
the result of that could possibly mean that their lampstand would be removed from them. Have you ever known a church where the lampstand has been removed? I have, and I know what happens. And it's a slow and painful death. And it does not set a great example in this, in our society for, for other people who are looking at us. And so Jesus issues a serious condemnation to them. Notice what it says in, in verse four there. Um, okay. Is that verse four? But you have the, yeah, okay. So, sorry about that. I'm just going to read it from here. No, verse four here. Um, it says, yet I hold this against you. He says this. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Jesus looks beyond the outward appearance and goes to the heart of the matter. That's what he does. Despite all their good deeds, despite all of that, this church had a major heart problem. And a church that does not have a healthy heart is not going to last. So this church no longer loved Christ as they once did. And so I think that one of the reasons why Ephesus was the first one on the list is because of the seriousness of the problem, because it was a love problem. And as far as I'm concerned, if a church doesn't have love, they will, they might as well not be a church. The church no longer loved Jesus Christ as they once did. Their relationship with Christ was no longer vibrant, but now was stale. And maybe they were taking it for granted. I don't know. You know, they were going through all the right motions, but giving little thought to the relationship about Jesus Christ. You know, I want to say that it was probably a gradual erosion. It reminds me of the, the, the song that Casting Crowns does, that's one of my favorite songs. It's called Slow Fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away, when black and white turns to gray, when dark and darkness invades voices, you know, they, 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 they're all around us. And, you know, the price will be paid when you give yourself away. Jesus, he says, people don't crumble in a day. It takes sometimes a lifetime. But that's what it reminds me of. Number one, they, they were going through the motions of Christianity, but what was happening was the deep heart stuff for God wasn't really there. It just wasn't there. The excitement had gone and the wonder of God was missing. To be sure, there were works, there was toil, there was endurance in the church at Ephesus, but, but all these may be present even though there is a decay in love, it, it bothers me today, for there are many who are in the same condition. Outwardly, things look well, but inwardly, the heart no longer is filled with the love of Jesus. It can happen to any of us. Trying to live the Christian life without being filled with the love for him will soon cause you to to, to wind up empty and just a shell of what Christ intends for you to be. I'm talking to you personally now. Number two, the Christians at Ephesus were so busy doing things that what they did was, I don't know if they forgot to do it. I don't know what happened to them. But they stopped or they forgot to love Jesus. They, they stopped loving Jesus. Can, can, can you grasp that? All the while they were hunting down heretics, they forgot to love Jesus. Hating false doctrine doesn't equal to loving Jesus. It just doesn't. So a question I have for you is this. What is the greatest commandment of all? Yeah, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. The greatest commandment is not obeying your parents. Although you should, kids, are you listening to me? It's not, you know, t 
taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, it, it's not murder. It's not stealing or adultery. You know, th- those aren't the greatest commandments. No, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. So the greatest commandment is to love. And third, the problem is so severe that Jesus says to them that he's going to remove their lampstand from them if they didn't change. Do you understand what that means? Are you catching on to that? The very purpose of the church is to be a lampstand in a dark place. Would you say that that out there is a dark place? If you wouldn't, then I would say that you haven't been around for a while. Because that is a dark place out there. And the the very purpose of the church is to be a lampstand holding up the light by which men can find their way to God. So to lose their lampstand would be to lose the very purpose for their existence. And it would cause them to cease to being a church. Right doctrine, as important as it is, alone is no sufficient lighthouse for lost souls. Love, guys, love is the answer. You know, to, to be a church with, with no influence is to be no church. And so I want to, I want to kind of illustrate that with a story. And this is, this is kind of added here. I, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I'm going to do it anyway. It's a story that Max Lucado tells us in the, in the book When God Came Near. And it's the story entitled The Candles in the Storage Closet. Have you ever read that? I, I, I'm, some of you probably have, because I think I told it one Christmas here a few years ago. Maybe the first year that we were here. But I want, I want you to hear this. See, Max writes this, he, he writes about, you know, that he was at home. His wife and his daughter were there. And all of a sudden, the electricity went out in the house. And so they had no electricity, so they needed to find some light for the house. And so um, he asked his wife, you know, do we have any candles? And she said, they're, they're in the storage closet out there in the, off the kitchen there. And so, so what he did was he went out and he, as he's trying to find them, he, he hit his, I think he stubbed his toe. He talks about that. He stubbed his toe and it hurt. And so he gets to the, to the, the, the cupboard and he's, um, he says, I'm feeling kind of foolish because he was talking to himself. You know, he says, you know, I'm going to set you out here. And so, you know, in, in the living room, so you can, you can give light to my wife as she's doing some of her stuff. And, you know, we'll put one of you over here. And says, as I was turning to leave the, 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 the storage closet, he says, the large candle in my hand, he says, I had the large candle in my hand. And as I turned to leave the storage closet, he said, I heard this voice. <clears throat> and the voice said, now hold it right there. And so he says, I stopped, you know, is somebody in here with me? You know, he thought, and then he, he, he started to rax because he thought maybe it was his wife kind of like playing a joke on him or something like that, teasing him about the candles, talking to the candles. And she said, he says, okay, honey, stop kidding with me. And, 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 and he says this, he says, I said in the, in the semi darkness, but there was no answer. And then he says, hmm, maybe it was the wind. And then he took another step out of the storage closet. <clears throat> when the same voice said, hold it right there. There that voice was again. And my hands began to sweat, he said. Who said that? Who said that? And then the voice said, I did. <laughs> the voice was near my hand. Who are you? What are you? I'm a candle. <laughs> I looked at the candle I was holding. It was burning a strong golden flame. It was red and it sat on a heavy wooden candle holder that I had a firm handle on. I looked around once more to see if the voice was coming from another source. There's no one in here but you and me and the rest of us candles, the voice informed me. Would you flip out by that point in time? He says, I lifted the candle to take a closer look. He says, you wouldn't believe what I saw. He said, there was a tiny face in the wax. I told you you wouldn't believe. There was a tiny face in the wax. Not just a wax face that someone had carved into the wax, 
But this moving, functioning, flesh-like face, full of expression and life. Don't take me out of here. What? I said, don't take me out of this room. This is the candle talking. What do you mean? I have to take you out. You're a candle, and your job is to give light. It's dark out there, the candle said this. People are stubbing their toes, Max said, and walking into walls. And you have to come out and light this place up. But you can't take me out. I'm not ready, the candle explained with these, these pleading eyes. I'm not ready. I need, I need more preparation. <laughs> Making preparation, that's what he's doing. I couldn't believe my ears. More preparation? Yeah, I have decided that what I need to do, this is the candle talking, I need to research this job of light giving so I, I won't go out and make a bunch of mistakes. You know, you'd be surprised how distorted the glow of an untrained candle can be. So I'm doing some studying. I just finished a book on wind resistant. I'm in the middle of this great series of tapes on wick buildup and conservation. And, and, and I'm reading the best-selling book on flame display, and maybe you've heard it. And I said, no, I haven't heard it. What is it? It's called Waxing Eloquently. That really sounds... And then I caught myself. What am I doing? What am I doing here? I'm here conversing with a candle while my wife and daughter are out there in the darkness. All right, then, I said. You're not the only candle on the shelf. I'll blow you out, and I'll take another one of those candles. But just as I got my cheeks full of air, I heard other voices in the candle in the storage closet there. We aren't going either. It was a conspiracy. I turned around and looked at three other candles, each with flames dancing above their miniature faces. I was beyond feeling awkward at that point about talking about candles. I, w- I was getting kind of mad. You know, you are candles, and your job is to light dark places. Well, that may be what you think, one of the candles said. It was a, it was the, the candle to the far left. That candle was a long, thin fellow with a goatee on it, and it had a British accent. Uh, you, you may think we have to go, but I'm busy. Busy? Yes, I'm meditating. What? A candle that meditates? Yes. I'm meditating on the importance of light, and it's really enlightening. That's what he said. I decided to reason with them, reason with these candles. Listen, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I'm all for meditation time. You know, everyone needs to study and research. But for goodness sakes, you guys have been in here for weeks. I mean, maybe even months. Haven't you had enough time to get your wick on straight? And you other two, I ask, are are you going to stay in here as well? A short, fat, purple candle with plump cheeks that reminded me of Santa Claus spoke up and said this, I'm waiting to get my life together. You know, I'm not stable enough. I I lose my temper easily. I get what you might say a little bit hot-headed. And the last candle, well, the last candle had a female voice, very pleasant to the ear. I'd like to help, she explained, but lighting the darkness is not my gift. It just isn't. You know, Max went on to say, all this is kind of sounding too familiar. Not your gift? What do you mean? Well, she said, I'm a singer, And I sing to the other candles to encourage them to burn more brightly. And without asking my permission, she began a rendition of this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. And you know what? I have to admit, he said, she sounded really good. The other three joined in, filling the storage room with singing. Hey, I shouted to above the music. You know, I don't mind if you sing while you work. In fact, We could use a little music out there where it's dark. But they didn't hear me. They were singing too loudly, and so I yelled louder. 
Come on, you guys. Come on. There's plenty of time for this later. We've got a crisis on our hands out there in the living room. But they wouldn't stop. I put the big candle on the shelf and I took a step back and considered the absurdity of it all. Four perfectly healthy candles singing to each other about light but refusing to come out of the closet. I I had all I could take, he said. One by one, I blew them out. They kept singing to the end. The last one to flicker was the female candle, and I snuffed her out right in the middle of puff part. Won't let Satan puff me out. So I stuck my hand in my pockets. I walked back out into the darkness. I bumped my knee on the same freezer that I stubbed my toe on. And then I bumped into my wife and I asked her these questions. She said, where are those candles? And I said, they don't. I mean, they won't work. Where did you get those candles, by the way? Oh, they're church candles. Remember that church down the road that that closed its doors? I bought them from there. And then he said, I understood. I understood. Folks, we can be busy doing all kinds of religious things, but they're going to be irrelevant if our purpose and our influence are gone. Does anything from the church of Ephesus sound familiar? Has our love grown cold in our relationship with Jesus? Has it? You know, each one of us as individuals has to answer that question on our own. You know, have we got caught up in doing things and have lost our deep, deep love for our Lord, our Master, our Savior, our friend Jesus You know, don't settle for the better when God is demanding of us the best. He's demanding that. Before we do anything else, we must make sure that we have this love thing right. We got to have it right. You know, our deep love for Christ is what will build the kingdom of God. You know, our deep love for Christ is how we become a house of prayer. Our deep love for Christ is what will make Cornerstone Church of Christ a haven of rest for lost souls. Because it's all about love. That's where it starts. It starts with love. So here are some symptoms or signs of losing our love for Jesus. Number one, maybe it's the loss of joy and the glow of the Christian life and our service to Jesus. You know, have we got so caught up in the work and the hassle of life that our service to Jesus has lost the excitement of serving and it's just become kind of mechanical for us now with no deep thought about it anymore and what we're doing. You know, remember when you first became a Christian? Do you remember that day? And how excited and how on fire you were for the Lord? Remember that first day, men, as you're standing there watching your future bride walking down the aisle and how wonderful that was? Now, it may seem like it's just the same old, same old routine. This happens to us in all areas of our life. It does. You know, it can happen in worship. It can happen in our prayer life. It can happen in our quiet time. It can happen at work. It can happen anywhere, everywhere in our areas of life. Number two, maybe it's our our loss of the ability to love others. Because you know what? Sometimes people are hard to love. You know those people. They are hard to love. And And it doesn't get any easier when they're in your face all the time. It just doesn't. But Christ calls us to love the unlovable. I remember when I was a dean, I was the general dean for camp at Pacifica. And every year we had a counselor's retreat. And we had these these teenagers coming in and I had to teach them. Richard Richard Rexler and I would, would teach these kids, 
you know, we would go through different things. But one of the things that I taught them was this. When you're in camp and you see a, a camper coming in and they're going off and they're sitting by themselves, you need to be on that. You need to go to them and sit with them and love them into the body of, of, the, of the camp believers there. That is vitally important to do that. Love them into the body. Number three, maybe it's that we have lost a healthy perspective of ourselves. You know, when this happens, we become more and more important. We become more and more important. We do. We do. I do. Me, myself, I. What pleases us becomes more important than what pleases the Lord. And then we begin to focus more on our own comfort and pleasure. And all of a sudden, the focus is on our desires. Well, you know what? This can lead to becoming disinterested in evangelism. And if that means that we're coming, becoming disinterested in evangelism, then what does that ultimately mean? It means that we're becoming disinterested in reaching lost people. That's what it means. And a host of other things. You know, it, it can actually lead to begin to look at, at church growth as more of a nuisance than anything else. Because, you know, we, we, we won't know everybody in the church. We won't know everybody. And, and, and I don't want someone taking my seat because I like to sit there. And so it becomes a nuisance to us. And, and, and so let, let's just forget about that part. Let's just be a little, little family here and, and just enjoy. And I get to sit right there wherever I want to sit and no one can take my place. And you know what I like? I like when, maybe some of you guys will do this. I like it when I see people not sitting in the same spot all the time. I see Ken and Medina, you guys, I can never find out where you are because you're always sitting somewhere different all the time. You know, I like that. I like that. But we got to really be careful. You know, where we are in our relationship with, I guess the question I need to ask you is this, is where are we in our relationship to Jesus? You know, has our love for Jesus faded? Was it a slow fade? What, was that what it was? So, so Jesus commends the church at Ephesus. Then he hurls this, this condemnation at them. And then finally what he does is Jesus gives them a command. Notice what it says there in verses 5 and 7. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Notice that. Do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Talking about heaven there. In the paradise of God. Here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus gives us, He gives us three steps for renewing our love affair with Jesus. Love for Christ should grow. It should not diminish. When you become a Christian, your love for Jesus should be continually to grow. It's just like that husband and wife relationship. If it's, if it's built on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, you know, I love Sarah more than I did in 1984 when I married her. I love her deeply more because I know her. And that's the way a, a love relationship should do. It should grow. It should not diminish. And if we find ourselves losing the passion of our love for Jesus, and if you are at the crossroads in your relationship with Jesus, as the, the church at Ephesus was, then you need to follow these steps. Write them down if you need to. But number one is this. Remember. Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what God has done for you. Remember, you can do all, you, you can do all the good things that you want to and, and not be secured in heaven. Remember that your sins were bought with a price. 
They were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember your zeal for winning the lost. Does salvation mean anything to you? Does it mean anything to you? Will there be anybody in heaven because of you? That is a really serious question we need to ask ourselves, each one of us. Will there be anybody in heaven because of you? Salvation should mean something to all of us, and it should cause us to want to share it with everyone. So remember, number two, repent. You know, this is a great time for us to have a repentance service right here in this building right now. Right now. You know, there was a time we could all say that our love for Jesus was the most important thing to us in this whole world. You know, and for some of us here today, you can still say that because your love for him is still going strong. But what about the rest of us? I'm including myself in that. What about the rest of us? Well, from what Jesus is saying here, if it's not the way you want it to be, you can turn it around. God is the God of second chances. He loves you. And and he's the God of third and fourth and fifth chances because he loves you. So we need to repent. We need to get focused. We need to set our priorities straight. Learn to say no to those things that are pulling you away. What's more important than than our love for Jesus? What's more important than that? Is our social life more important? Do you have a social life? Is that more important to you than the love of Jesus? Is pleasing other people more important to you? How about a job? Is that job more important? Or your marriage? Is it more important? Or your house? Or your car? Or your children? Are they more important than that relationship with Jesus? Because they shouldn't be. Jesus, that is the number one relationship that we should all have. And so I want to make sure that you understand this. Jesus wasn't talking to lost people when he said to them, repent. He was talking to the church people. He was talking to the church. He didn't use a different word. He he, he did not use a, a milder word that meant something less. This word repent is the same word that John the Baptist used and it's the same word that Peter used when he addressed the mob that crucified Jesus. When they came to him and said, we've done this terrible thing, what must we do? And Jesus replied there, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells us there. Wow. That's what he tells us to do. And so... There are some who have a hard time believing that the church ever needs to repent. But Jesus spoke to this church and told them that they need to repent. Now, now remember, let's go back to the very beginning of all this. Remember, this was a dynamic, dedicated, determined, disciplined, and discerning church. They had, all that they had done was was just lost this little bit of passion that they once had for Jesus. But let me tell you something. That's just how Satan wants you to view this, as just a little petty something without a real desire consequence. But Jesus knows the danger, and Jesus knows the importance of maintaining a heart full of love for him. But Satan, he's tricky. And he wants you to just think that this isn't nothing big. Don't, don't worry about it. Jesus looked at this church and he said it needed to repent because going through the motions will never be enough to please God. So if we are not burning with passion for Jesus, we had better look and see what's wrong and be willing to let Christ fix that within us Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, he said, repent. They needed to change their attitude towards Jesus and resume their first love. Resume their first love. And then the third thing that he says to them, he says, return. Jesus is waiting for you to return. 
and you can recapture that love that you have for him once again. Return to reading your Bible with eager eyes and, and praying about everything. You know, in Desert Storm, the first thing that they did when they went in there was they took out their communication system. That's what they did. When they did that, it was easy to defeat the enemy. Satan is always trying to take out our communication system with the Father. He's always trying to do that. And my, my statement to you is this, don't allow him to do that. Do you still love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you? Maybe some of you are sitting here today and thinking that, that my love relationship with Jesus is just fine. And you know what? If it is, that is wonderful. I'm so glad. But there are some, maybe more than we think, who are going through exactly what the Christians at Ephesus were going through. If so, then you need to ask yourselves these three questions. Number one is, what needs to happen in my life to get me focused on Jesus? Number two, what am I doing that needs to go? What do I got to stop doing? And number three is this, what am I not doing that I need to do? What am I not doing that I need to do? As we close this morning, the invitation is open, folks. If you are not a Christian, we offer the invitation for you to come and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let Jesus know this morning that you are in love with him because he is in love with you and he wants to spend eternity with you. Number two, now I want to talk to the church people. I want to talk to you specifically to you today. How much impact are we having on our community? Have you lost sight of why you came to Jesus? Have you lost that love that you once had as a newborn babe in Christ? Have we forgot about our first love and, and loving Jesus are you just going through the motions of the Christian life, but there is no deep love relationship there for Jesus? Are we so busy with religious activity that's making no difference at all? And the question is this, do we want to be different? Do we want to be different? We live in a society that hates Jesus. We live in a society that hates Christianity. They will embrace everything but Christianity. Lou Holtz coached Jerome Bettis back at Notre Dame. Remember that? When Jerome Bettis was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams, Lou Holtz saw him on TV playing for the Rams. He was not hitting the holes. He looked completely flat like, like he had lost all of his moves. And so the next day, Lou Holtz calls Jerome Bettis and asks him this question. He said, who stole your football jersey? That couldn't have been you out there on that field. So who stole your jersey? I just want to know. And so I guess my question is, did we allow someone to steal our first love? If so, then this morning, we need to get it back. Did we allow someone to steal our first love? We need to get it back if they did. And, and, and you can do that by coming and falling falling on your knees at the throne of grace, at the cross. You know, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable to come. And let me tell you, it was uncomfortable to have to preach this message because these, these words are not my words. They're God's words. And, and if I have to stand alone up here, I'll stand alone. But I, I want to recapture that love that I have for Christ. And we allow, we allow the world to just diminish that all the time because we get so much involved in that. But when it all comes out in the, in the, the bathwater, they say, it's our love for Jesus that, that needs to stand as the most important thing ever in our obedience to Him. So I hope and pray that if you need to recapture that, that you will come this morning and stand with me. You know, I want Cornerstone to have that same love that I've had and I would like to say, as we close, that the good news 
is that everyone at the church at Ephesus came forward and they focused their, on, on that love for Jesus. I would love to tell you that that's what happened to them. The church at Ephesus is urged to reflect on its fall and to repent or else their lampstand, remember their lampstand was going to be removed from them. That's what he tells them. The unfortunate thing is, is that there is no church at Ephesus today. And that the city stands in ruins. And as I stop to think about that, I pray that that would not happen to his church in Chambersburg. So this morning, if you need to come, you need to repent. If you want to come and take a stand with me, then we open that invitation to you as the band comes and they're going to lead us this morning.